It's nice to have gained back that hour that we lost last spring. I haven't felt good since we went on daylight saving time. I think it's because I've lost all that sleep. It would be interesting to know how many of you are here thinking this is the 1030 service. I had some people show up at the 830 service thinking it was 930, and they said, we're all the people. Just forgot to set their clocks back. I want to uh, exercise my whatever pastoral prerogatives I have and uh, pass over the last verses of chapter 14 and go on to chapter 15 this morning. It occurred to me this past week, in looking at these verses, that there are three major topics there, uh, all of which we have considered in detail at some point in the past. I really don't have anything more I want to say about the charismatic movement. And if any of you were not here last week and would like to uh, to know what was said, you can get the tape and review it from the tape. A number of months ago, I did a, an entire message on Deuteronomy 18 on the gift of prophecy, so there's really no need to repeat that material. And the only other issue is that of the role of women in the church, which we considered in 1 Corinthians 11. So since those are topics that have been covered extensively in the past, I thought in uh, the good tradition of Idahoans we would press on to greater things and go on to chapter 15. If some of you still have questions about my understanding of the gift of prophecy, I would be glad to talk to you personally and explain my reasons. Let's uh, look at chapter 15. This uh, particular chapter, as you know, deals with the issue of the resurrection. My uh, nine-year-old Joshua this morning asked me what I was going to preach on, and I said, the resurrection. He said, oh, I know all about that. So uh, perhaps this is, uh, this is material that you're familiar with, but we're going to look at it anyway. <clears throat> this question of, uh, of life after death is a very relevant one. There are, as you know, a number of books that are in circulation now describing uh, events, people who appeared to have died and then came back and reported on what uh, what life is like after death. There is a great preoccupation, I think, with this subject. It's nothing new. Death has always been one of our major preoccupations. We spend a great deal of time and and energy and money just trying to stave off the effects of death. But uh, like taxes, it's still one of the great inevitabilities of, of life. In fact, you may avoid taxes, but one thing we won't avoid is death. As far as I know, the death rate has been almost 100% since the beginning of time. My father told me once of an epitaph on a, a tombstone that read, Consider, friend, as you pass by, um, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. And some wag had written underneath, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> and that's, uh, I think, our concern. What do we face after death? Is there life after death? This was a concern of the Corinthians as well. We know something of the philosophy that pervaded the city of Corinth in the first century uh, after Christ's death. And this philosophy had made its way into the church, apparently, and that's why Paul had to write these words. There were two major Greek philosophies at that time. One was Stoicism, which believed in the immortality of the soul, but uh, it was more like the Hindu concept of immortality than our concept of immortality. 
They believed that people simply merged into some kind of cosmic force, some sort of great cosmic soup in which we were all mixed after after death. And it was very much like a lot of the Eastern religions that, that many of you are familiar with. The other major philosophy was Epicureanism. And their major tenet, as you know, was eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. They were materialists. And they believed that there was nothing more than matter. So uh, when matter is dispersed, then there's nothing. There's no spirit. There's nothing after uh, death. We're simply obliterated like dogs and cats and cattle. And there's nothing really to live for beyond death. So why not live now? And that apparently was the philosophy that had won the day in Corinth. Most of the writings that we have of that period were Epicurean. And incidentally, that's the philosophy that, that prevails today. That's what's behind that uh, that advertisement, you only, go, you only go around once, so you've got to go for the gusto. It's exactly the same philosophy. We just have one life to live, so go for broke. Pull out all the stops and let her rip, because this is all there is to it. When you die, you just die, and there's nothing after death. That's the end. So live for now. There's no immortality, there's no morality, because if there's nothing after death, there's no particular reason to be uh, proper or righteous or good or trustworthy or loving or sensitive or anything else, you see. And that's, that's the philosophy that pervades our schools, and uh, it's filtered down to the man on the street. Now, it's this issue that Paul is concerned with here in chapter 15, and we have a lot of verses to cover, so I want to read quite a bit of material and then just make some brief comments as we... Uh, as we read. Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I'm sure you noticed at least three times in the passage Paul refers to his preaching. This is something I preached. He says, this is something we preach, the apostles preach. This was something that I received and delivered to you. In other words, Paul's concern in these 11 verses is to establish that the resurrection was part and parcel of apostolic preaching. The gospel must include the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, apparently in Paul's day, there were people that were saying that, were saying that the resurrection is a scandal. It offends too many people. Let's don't preach the resurrection. Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. Those are on a par with other great teachers of our day, the great Greek thinkers in Corinth. But when you start talking about the resurrection, people get uptight and they reject it. So let's just talk about Jesus' teachings. 
And that likewise is a very uh, contemporary uh, approach to the gospel. There was a group in uh, California when I lived there called the Teachings of Jesus that had a, uh, they, they taught from the gospels, but it was a gospel from which all references to the cross and the resurrection had been expunged. It simply contained Jesus' teachings. Now that sounds good. And it sounds that it would be more acceptable to teach the gospel in that way. But the problem is this. The teachings of Jesus only make us more guilty. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion that you come to is that you're far, far away from the heart and mind of God. And if that's what God expects, I can't do it. I just can't produce on that level. I don't have what it takes. And it condemns us. It makes us feel guilty. It's the gospel that delivers. And the gospel contains the word of the resurrection. Now, that's Paul's point. From the very beginning, from the time when the apostles first began to teach, they taught the resurrection. Now, Paul says there are two reasons why we do. First, it's because the resurrection is taught in the Scriptures. Now, the Scriptures that he's referring to are the Old Testament Scriptures. So it might be of interest to you to know that the resurrection, Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection are found in the Scriptures. Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, Jesus is described as one who died for our sins and one whose days would be prolonged. He would see his offspring. So the resurrection, you see, is, is referred to even 800 years or 700 years before Jesus came. But Paul says, we preach it because it's in the Scriptures and it's part of the revelation that was delivered to me as, apostle, as an apostle. Now, Paul gives us in this uh, brief paragraph the content of the gospel, and essentially it's threefold. The gospel, as you know, is the good news. And what makes the news good is three truths. Number one, Jesus died for our sins. Now, the good news is not that Jesus died. I don't think anyone questions the fact that Jesus lived and died. I don't know of any, anyone who's attacking the historical facts of Jesus' life and death. Even the most uh, uninformed individual today knows that Jesus lived and died. That's not the gospel. A number of years ago, I was uh, uh, working with another man, Bob Reverts, in a Young Life Club in California. And we had a bunch of kids in that club that were just out-and-out pagan kids. Pagan in the sense that they had never heard the gospel. They didn't have the foggiest idea what the gospel was. And I remember one night Bob Reverts was speaking and a young man came up after he got through and he said, hey, Bob, this uh, guy Jesus, he was a Jew, wasn't he? And Bob said, yes, he was. Uh, and they did something to him. They, they hung him, didn't they? And Bob said, yes, they crucified him on a cross. And the thing that struck me is that here was a very uh, uninformed young person, knew nothing of the gospel, and yet he knew... Uh, at least of those facts, Jesus lived and, and died. Those are ideas that are widely held, but what people don't understand is that Jesus died for our sins. And that's what delivers us. You see, sin is, that's one of the hard facts of life. How do we cope with the problem of sin? How do we deal with guilt? Maybe we can uh, make some solid resolve that we're never going to sin again in the rest of our, uh, for the rest of our life. And, of course, we know the emptiness of that promise because we will. But even if we could, what do we do about the sins that are past? They're already committed. They cannot be undone. We've offended against God. We know it. Well, what do we do? Well, we believe the gospel. 
that Jesus died for our sins. Back in the Old Testament uh, days, their way of worshiping, you know, was to bring a lamb to the temple. And they, the offerer would place his hands on the head of the lamb. And the, the Hebrew says he would lean on the lamb. He would place his entire weight on the head of that lamb and he would confess his sin. And then they would offer up the lamb as a substitute. In place of the man, the lamb would be offered. And the lamb would, at least for a time, take away his sins, they believe. When John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, they knew exactly what he was talking about. This is the one who took them away for all time. You see. One sacrifice for all time for sin. That's the good news. God doesn't hold our sin against us. Never has, never will. Because Jesus died for our sins. But secondly, Paul tells us he was buried. That seems almost self-evident. That's what you do with dead things, you bury them. But I don't think I fully understood the, the meaning of that phrase until I saw the film Jesus. We had an opportunity to preview that uh, film just the other day. and It's a very earthy uh, down-to-earth production of Jesus' life and ministry. Very, very, it's an excellent film. And at one point, where Jesus is hanging on the cross, the disciples are gathered at the foot of the cross, and they begin to drift away. And you can almost read their thoughts. You know, we had pinned our hope on this man, and, and they kept waiting for some miracle. They believed that he would deliver himself in some way and come down off of the cross and reveal himself as the Son of God, but he didn't. And then he died. And the question comes, what do we do with him now? We somehow have, to, somehow have to dispose of the body. And so Joseph of Arimathea and the other disciples prepare the body for burial and wrap it in the grave clothes. And it was cold and lifeless. You could not have convinced those disciples that Jesus was in a coma. He was dead. They knew he was dead. Their, their, their hearts, you see, had gone out from him. There was nothing more to live for. And they laid him away in a tomb. That burial speaks of the finality of his death. He really died. It wasn't a myth. He became a man. And he died for our sins. But the story doesn't end there. If it did, it would be, it would be tragic. The good news is that he rose from the dead. And you see, that's what makes the Christian message unique. That resurrection was God's sign to the world that this is his way of solving the problem of sin. You see? You can look at any other world religion and you find no resurrection. Buddha's still in the grave. But Christian faith is unique because the resurrection establishes the uniqueness of God's way. And it's by Jesus Christ. There's simply no other way. Jesus asked the disciples once who they thought he was and, and their answers uh, indicated a, a kind of basic misunderstanding. They thought he was one in a line of, of great men until Peter said, no, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, he's unique. There's no one like him. And that's what the resurrection establishes. No one else has risen from the dead. And that's God's sign of approval, that his way is the right way. And therefore, when Christians go out and preach the gospel as exclusive, they're simply doing so because God himself has said that's so. Now, there's a second reason why the disciples preached the resurrection. Not only was it revealed in Scripture, but they experienced it. 
We're told in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas was, that's another name for Peter, as you know. It's the Aramaic equivalent of Peter. Peter was not the first to see the risen Lord. Mary Magdalene was. But Cephas was known by the church in Corinth. And therefore, they could, they could talk to him. They could ask him. And he could verify that he had seen the risen Lord. And then he appeared to the twelve, the twelve disciples, the apostles. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. They could not have been a victim of some mass hysteria. Not 500. Maybe the apostles. They they might have been able to convince themselves that Jesus would come back. They were so fooled that they actually thought they saw the resurrected Lord, but not 500 brethren who saw him at one time. And then the apostles again ate with him and walked with him beside the Sea of Galilee for 40 days. And then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, who throughout his life didn't believe in Jesus until the resurrection, would have nothing to do with him, thought he was insane, and therefore would be a very credible witness because he wasn't uh, deluded, self-deluded. He would know. And he saw the risen Lord. And then Paul says, Last of all, he appeared to me also on the road to Damascus as Paul made his way up to Damascus with letters giving him authority to persecute the church. He saw the risen Lord and fell to his knees and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? No question in Paul's mind. He saw the Lord. So all of these witnesses verify the truth of the resurrection. And if you stop and think about it a moment, it's a very convincing argument. Paul says many of these people are still alive. It's less than 20 years after the resurrection. You want to check it out? Just call them up on the telephone and ask them, did you see the risen Lord? And they would verify it. So So it's a very weighty argument. It's rooted in history, Paul says. It not only is rooted in Scripture, but it's rooted in history. And that's why it's the content of apostolic preaching. That's what we teach and declare. The gospel includes the facts that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the content of apostolic preaching. And the consequences of it, Paul says, is that you're saved. In verse 2, By which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's what delivers you. That's what delivers you from all the enemies that face us today, our self-pity and our worry and anxiety and fear and the hopelessness of life, the emptiness, the frustration, the meaningless, meaninglessness of our ex, uh, existence apart from God. It delivers us. It sets us free. Paul says, unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul is not saying here that some may believe, fully believe, and then let go of it. That's not his point. He's saying if your faith has been empty, if you've simply had an intellectual faith, you've never made Christ Lord of your life, you may let it go. But if you believe fully, if your heart is yielded to Christ's lordship, then you can't let go. Many, many times, I must confess in my life, I wanted to let go. I was tired of being a Christian. I was tired of some of the pressure and frustrations, and I wanted to get out. But I couldn't. Every time I tried, the Lord held me fast. I couldn't get out of it. And that's Paul's point. You will hold fast if your belief is genuine, you see. And the result will be salvation. You'll be delivered from life and from death. That's the good news. And that's the content of, of the preaching of the apostles. Now, 
Paul, in verses 12 and following, sets up a series of hypothetical situations. What if, he says. That's the sort of activity that we engage in every once in a while. What if I had married someone else? What if I worked for someone else? What if I'd moved to another town? You know, that's sort of a harmless occupation. But in Paul's case here, in this, in this uh, particular chapter, it's a very weighty argument. What if Jesus had never risen from the dead? What would be the consequences of that fact? Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You see, the deeper underlying issue in Corinth was their, their belief that there was no resurrection of the dead, no resurrection of the body at all. And he argues this way, if there's no resurrection of the body, then Jesus is not raised because he had a human body and his humanity is inextricably linked to ours. And if we're not raised, then neither was Jesus. And if Jesus is not raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. We've wasted our time listening to teachers, listening to tapes. Throw your tapes away. Stop supporting all these radio preachers. Dismantle your church buildings. And forget the Christian faith because it's all empty. All the preaching, all the assembling together that we've done as Christians is just empty if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Moreover, Paul says, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. In other words, the credibility of the apostles is in question because part and parcel of their witness was that we saw the risen Lord. Well, then they're liars if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So let's forget the New Testament. Just cut that portion of the, of the Bible out of your Bibles if you want to keep a Bible at all and throw it away because the apostles are liars. And their teaching is worth nothing. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. So there's no answer to the guilt of the past. Nothing to cover our failure. There's no power for the future. Our sins are not atoned for. He simply died like any other teacher or founder of a religion. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Our loved ones that have perished, our children, our mothers, fathers, friends, who have perished are gone. We'll never see them again. Life's just full of sadness and emptiness and sorrow. There's nothing to comfort anyone with. Because death means obliteration. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we Christians teach a gospel from which we have taken the resurrection, taken it out, we've expunged it, then we just ought to be pitied. That's all. People ought to feel sorry for us because we're clinging to some ethical system that just robs us of life. There, there, there is a, I think I mentioned this once before, in, a, in the catacombs in Rome, there's a fresco on one wall, and someone has characterized a, a man on a cross. He's hanging on the cross, and there's a young man kneeling at the foot of the cross, worshiping the figure that's crucified. And the head of the figure is a donkey's head. It's very obvious that it's a, it's a caricature of Christ with a young man worshiping that caricature with a donkey's head. 
And underneath is the, is the caption, Anaxagabus worships his God. You see, that's what, that's what the Roman world thought of Christians in those days. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, they're right. People ought to make fun of us. Because we're just pouring our life out for nothing. We might as well eat, drink, and, and be merry because tomorrow we die. We might as well go for the gusto. There's no reason to hang on to our Christian faith and its morality if Christ is not raised from the dead. We're of all men most to be pitied. Bertrand Russell, you know, who is sort of the arch unbeliever of our century, writes, The life of man is a long march through the night surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain towards a goal that few can hope to reach and where none can tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. And that's all life has to hope for him or for us if Jesus is not risen from the dead. But, Paul says, and this is the answer that overshadows all of these hypothetical questions, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep the first fruits were the, of course, the first appearance of fruits in the spring, fruit in the spring. And that's a very uh, appropriate symbol because the resurrection took place in the spring. Jesus came out of the grave, broke the bands of death when the first fruits were appearing. And he's the first of those who are asleep. You might argue, no, he wasn't the first. Lazarus was. But Lazarus, you see, was simply resuscitated. He came back to life and then he died again. But Jesus came out of the grave to a new quality of life. He was a new person, you see, and a new body, a different kind of experience, an eternal kind of life. And as such, he presages those of us who follow. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. It was a man who got us into this mess, and that was Adam. Adam sinned and because Adam's sin, sin infiltrated the entire human race and, and men died. Adam did it to us. He's responsible for all the hurt and the pain, the suffering and the death that we as, as men experience. But by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. It was a man who solved the problem of death. And then so there'll be no question, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That is, all who are in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ set his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. That may be confusing to some of you, but what, really what he's saying is that Jesus is ruling now. We don't have to wait for his final reign passage tells us he's reigning now and he's putting down his enemies and his enemies are our enemies 
That's a great lesson to learn. I think sometimes, particularly as young men and women, we think that God is just out to cramp our style and take all the joy out of life. He's sort of a divine wet blanket that just smothers everything meaningful and, and worthwhile out of our lives. But what we don't understand is that God's enemies are our enemies. God hates what we hate. The boredom of our lives without Christ, the emptiness, the limitations, the habits that control us, the frustration. That's what God hates. Those are enemies of the soul. And it's those things that God wants to eradicate. I have a friend who, as a part of his testimony, used to say, when I became a Christian, I had to give up all sorts of things. I had to give up anxiety and fear and worry and frustration and self-pity. And you see, that's what God does. Those are the Lord Jesus' enemies. And he's reigning now in our hearts, delivering us from those enemies. And the last enemy, he says, is death. And when once for all he puts that away, then he's going to return the kingdom to God, and God the Father will be everything. He'll rule. In the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us, So then the children share in flesh and blood, since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. I've been a Christian most of my life, and I've known this truth, so it was nothing new to me. And I can honestly say I've never been afraid of death. I don't particularly look forward to the pain that's associated with it, if that's what it means, but, but I'm not afraid of death. Because knowing this truth is what sets us free. Death is simply the entrance into a, a new experience of life where everything is set right. As Revelation tells us, there's no crying, there's no suffering, there's no sorrow. All the limitations of our body are taken away. We have a body that's equal to the demands of the Spirit. We can do things that we've always wanted to do. And I really believe that all of the things that we enjoy now, our fellowship with one another, our, our delight in seeing the beauty of God's creation, those are things that will be enhanced a hundredfold throughout heaven, throughout eternity in heaven. That's what heaven is like. That's why C.S. Lewis says our first words when we step into heaven will be, of course. That's what I thought it would be like. And so death doesn't have any terror for us, but for some people it does. All of their lifetime, they've been subject to the slavery of death. Every time they stop thinking about something, their mind goes to the fact that they're going to die. Every time they're not distracted, they start thinking about death. They're enslaved by it. But you see, that's what the Lord has delivered us from. It's slavery to dying. That's the last enemy which he will abolish. Now, verses 29 through 34 contain his appeal. And there must be an appeal. The resurrection is not merely something that we can believe intellectually. It has to affect our behavior. And so Paul concludes this portion of the argument in this way. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And that's a very difficult passage. And many of you know that that's the passage which the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints bases their doctrine uh, of uh, baptism for the dead upon. They have extensive genealogical tables. They've done a great deal of research into the ancestry of people in the uh, LDS church. 
And people can be baptized for their ancestors. Some people will say they've been baptized for hundreds of people in the past and for various figures in history, Napoleon and uh, George Washington and others. Uh, it does give us some insight into the major tenet, I think, of Mormon doctrine, which is salvation by works, because it's baptism thus that saves us. But the point I want to make is that this entire doctrine is based on one verse which no one understands. No one really knows what this verse means. I've read uh, most of the commentators, and I'm convinced that they're just as confused as I am. We simply don't know what Paul is talking about here. It may be some practice that was going on, some group that was baptizing for the dead. I'm inclined to think there may be another answer. The uh, preposition that's used here for the dead can have the idea of in place of, and what Paul could be saying is that uh, he's asking the question, why are some becoming Christians and being baptized to replace those who have died and gone on if there's no life after death? In other words, if you become a Christian, you just die, like every, every like the philosophers say, and there's nothing to the idea of a resurrection, then why keep becoming Christians? That may be the way he's arguing. But it's impossible to know. He does go on in verse 30, Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. One of my friends said recently, if, uh, if we're on the Titanic, if we have a ticket for the Titanic, we might as well go first class. Um, if there's nothing else to life than this life, then we might as well go for broke, just to eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. And then in verse 33, Paul does an interesting thing. He quotes a pagan poet, uh, a playwright by the name of Menander. And this quotation is actually found in his writings. Paul not only quoted the Old Testament, he quoted contemporaries as well. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, even a pagan poet, he says, can, can lay hold of a truth. If you keep the wrong company, it will affect your morals. And Paul's point is if you're aligning yourself with those who deny the resurrection, as the Epicureans are doing, it will corrupt your morals. It will have something to do with your conduct. You can't go on rejecting the resurrection and expect it not to affect your life in some way it will. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What Paul is saying is this, if we fully understand the resurrection, if we understand our life has continuity, we're creatures of eternity and not time, it's going to affect the way we think about everything. It'll color our perspectives on all of life. It'll affect the way you think about yourself. Have you ever looked in the mirror and, and said to yourself, God sure didn't make me ugly in face or form. Now, that may be a real tragedy in a world where beauty is, is worshipped, and particularly our most current concept of what beauty is. Or maybe you have a problem with weight. And right now in our culture, thin is in, and you're not. And so that troubles you. You're struggling all the time with your weight. And you get resentful at God, and you think, why did God make me like this? Here I live out my 70, uh, whatever, 70 years, and I'm saddled with a face like this, or a body like this. How unjust. How terrible. 
But you see, we're taking the short-range view. Paul says this light, momentary affliction is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. When you think of our 70 years or whatever God gives us in terms of, of an eternal perspective, an eternal life lived out in God's presence, what difference does it make what we look like now? It doesn't matter. It'll affect the way we look at our possessions. Are we going to spend our, our life amassing a fortune, building an estate for ourselves or for our children, and spending vast amounts of money and energy and think time just making more money or gaining more power? Or are we going to invest our lives where they count, in people? You see, people are the only things around that are eternal. Things are going to burn up. That's always Carolyn's uh, stock statement whenever something gets destroyed around our house. Well, it's going to burn up someday anyway. Things don't matter. They're going to be destroyed. What matters is people. Where are we investing our time and our lives? Are you preoccupied with styles and the way you dress? Nothing wrong with looking stylish. There's nothing wrong with investing money there, but it's wrong to be preoccupied with it, to think about it all the time, to make that the ultimate end of everything. Nothing wrong with with enhancing the beauty of your house and making it a lovely place to live in, but are you preoccupied with that? Is that what you think about? Is that where you spend all of your energy and your time and your effort? Is your job so paramount in your life that that's all you think about? You drag all the things home from work and you work on them until midnight and that's all you do. Just think, 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 job, your vocation. And if we do, we've lost perspective. Because what matters in this world is the cultivation of our own character before God. And that's where we ought to be putting the priority. Learning to be God-like. Learning it God's way. Doing it by His grace and His power. Concentrating on those characteristics of Christ-likeness that we know are lacking in our life and asking God to Help us grow up in those areas. That's where we need to be concentrating. Instead of thinking about how we look physically, spending immense amounts of time and energy and money trying to look better on the outside instead of looking at the heart. And again, I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm talking about priorities. What's first in your life and mine? And secondly, what are we doing in terms of others' lives? Have we made ourselves available to serve people? To give our money to people that are in need, those that are less fortunate than us. We have so much here in America. And for us to begrudge anything to anyone is wrong. We ought to be giving liberally to people in need. And giving ourselves to people. Spreading seeds of righteousness and truth and love wherever we go. Helping people to grow up to full stature in Christ. That ought to be our preoccupation. Or put another way, as Jesus does, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Let's stand together, shall we? We pray. <clears throat> Father, how prone we are to lose sight of what really matters. To buy the world's lie that what, what matters is what happens now. And what we can get for ourselves now. And what we look like now. And what we have now. Deliver us, Father, from, from that 
way of thinking about things and help us to see from an eternal perspective that these light momentary afflictions, these circumstances, are working for us an eternal weight of glory. And we want that perspective to affect our lives now, make us more loving, thoughtful, giving people, courageous, morally, committed to you and to your word, available to be used, to share the gospel, and to help people grow up, to give help to those that are hurting and helpless, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.